turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 29 today. Uh, and these are really key passages. And because we're continuing to hit on, uh, there's a continuity, obviously, through the book of Galatians. And, and we're looking at some of the same arguments, but from different angles. Uh, and today, the angle that I want us to, to, to take in regards to how we approach this text is really to consider what it means to be positioned in Christ. That word in, that preposition, uh, is the most important word in Scripture. Jesus said, abide in me. That means remain in me. That our faith in Christ puts us in Christ and puts Christ by his Holy Spirit in us. That is our salvation. That is our peace. That is our righteousness. It's not wrapped up in what we do. It's wrapped up in who Jesus is for us. And we find ourselves in him when we place our faith, our dependence upon him. Uh, and, and this is what Paul is calling the, the churches of Galatia back to. They're, they're leaving their position in Christ and trying to return to Torah, which was a temporary guardian uh, until Christ came, as we'll see in the text today. But what I want us to look at is what it means to be in Christ uh, in, or what it means to be controlled by sin, because those are really the only two options. And so I want to consider three different facets of sin uh, in direct connection to the text before us of what it means to be in Christ. And so I want us to consider, first of all, what it means to be imprisoned under sin or to be free in Christ. Secondly, what it means to be dead in sin or alive in Christ. And then finally, what it means to be separated by sin or united in Christ. These are the three realities that we're going to consider today. So let's begin with this concept of being imprisoned under sin or free in Christ. Now look what Paul begins by saying. He says, now before faith came, and I want you to just notice the language he's using here. Righteousness comes by faith, not by the law. And when he says before faith came, what is he talking about? He's talking about Christ, because faith is only as good as the object in which we place our faith. Our dependence upon Christ, it's Christ that saves, not faith. Uh, we are saved by faith, but it's faith in Christ. And so when Scripture utilizes that language, you cannot separate Jesus from the faith. Uh, and so faith is not the power. Jesus is the power. Faith releases the power of Christ into our lives. So I just want to be clear on that. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Now, this is a fascinating reality that Paul begins to paint for us in the book of Galatians, and that is that he connects this reality of being imprisoned under sin, which we considered last week, and being imprisoned under law uh, as both being a curse, essentially, that the law can't save. The law is good and perfect. It's a revelation of God's boundaries to keep, it was given as, an, as a means of keeping the children of Israel parameters by which they could actually exercise their relationship of faith in the living God. But they failed in living by faith and focused on the parameter, on the externals. They gave all of their, all of their energy to the perimeters of the Jewish life rather than to the God who is meant to be the source of life and hope 
for themselves. And so the law becomes a curse because the law can't save. Remember what I said? The law is like a plumb line from heaven. All it does is reveal how crooked the wall is. And so he says, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. There's that word again. Until the coming faith would be revealed. And once again, that coming faith is the revelation that is given to us in Jesus and Jesus' continual call for us to follow him, to believe in him, to depend upon him. What must we do to do the work of God, Jesus was asked. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in me. He says, so then the law was our guardian. It was meant to create parameters until Christ came. I think that that is so important. It was temporary. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So first of all, I want us to consider this idea of sin as imprisonment. Galatians 3.22 said, but now scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So this is the, the umbrella by which we need to think about these texts. Everything, the cosmos is imprisoned under this reality, this power called sin. We forget that the scripture declares that everything that is outside of Christ and his promises, be it God's law or man's law, everything without any exception is locked up under sin. All is the only appropriate word. When it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that shows us the problem with the law. The law can't save. All it does is reveal our inability to keep the law. It reveals our impotence because the scripture has imprisoned all under sin. It declares this reality that there is a power that is placed upon us. I was speaking at Skate Church on uh, Tuesday night to the high school kids, and it was fascinating that 90% of these kids, if not 95%, are not believers. And I talked to them about these three realities of sin in preparation for my message with you today. And what was fascinating is that these non-believing kids fully understood every one of these principles. They know what it means to be imprisoned under sin, to not be able to do the things that they want to do, and to continually find themselves doing the things that they shouldn't do. What is this reality? And what I talk to them about, I'm like, sin is not the little things that you do wrong. It is literally a power that is over the entire cosmos that causes us, that drives us toward these realities that breaks down society, that hurts us, that imprisons us, that enslaves us. And every one of us know what it's like to be imprisoned, to feel enslaved, to feel trapped. I know what that's like. I still find the frustrations because not only do we live with fallen, with, with fallen souls, we live with fallen intellects and we live with fallen bodies. And so the moment I think I come over some sort of moral dilemma, okay, I, I now have victory over this sin, then I'm plagued with aging. But I'm physically dying. Why? Because everything is under sin and all of creation groans and awaits its redemption. It's we can't escape it. You overcome a sin and then somebody else uses the sin that you just overcame against you. And this is the reality, is that the imprisonment of sin is that we well, just look at the, the unbelievable violence that just happened in New Zealand. It's unbelievable. We should be praying so fervently for these families. 50 people shot and killed. 
It was a, they say it was a crime that was created for the internet. He wore a head cam and posted it live to Facebook. It's unbelievable the evil and the wickedness that plagues our society. And the thing is, is that there isn't that much distance between us and the perpetrator. And what we need to remember is that Jesus died for the victim and the victimizer. And this reality of sin and its imprisonment is that sin, the, the problem with sin is that when we're imprisoned in it, it blinds us. And that this is what theologians call the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Is that we're not even aware of it. I can't tell you how many Christians that I have seen fall into patterns of sin. And that pattern of sin enslaves them so deeply that it only takes time before they stop even seeing it as a sin. There's a famous book that was written, a novel, and I cannot remember the name of it. And I'm going to look it up before the next service because it just now came to me. Uh, but it was a novel, that, a controversial novel, in which Hitler escapes Europe during World War II, and, 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 which is actually a, a myth around Hitler, that he went to South America. And in this novel, they find Hitler in the jungle of, of Brazil. And he's put on trial. And he's asked, he, he's asked, why did he massacre the Jews? What was the reasoning? And his answer was to free our world from the morality of God. If we can get rid of the ones who are the defenders of the law of God, we can get rid of the law of God itself and no longer feel the curse that that law places upon us. I wish I remember the name of the book. It's a fascinating line, but just that part of the novel, just I remember it striking me so deeply, is that all of these atrocities, these imprisonments that we find ourselves under, think about the ways that societies throughout, throughout the world's history have tried to deal with the imprisonment of sin. And all they do is create more sin to deal with the sin. It's the problem. It's the cycle. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here is the thing. Scripture declares that sin as a power enjoys dominion over everything, reducing existence to a condition that requires not only release, but the creation of new life altogether. And this is what the gospel comes to offer to us. When we contrast, uh, and I think this is fascinating, we looked at these verses, um, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. With Leviticus 18.5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. It reinforces the incapacity of the Torah to set those who practice it free. Because no one is found righteous by keeping the Torah. Righteousness is promised on the basis of faith alone. The imprisonment of sin is what the Torah reveals. And the Torah finds itself under that same system. It's a law given to an impotent people. Isn't that intense? I think that, and, and I, I like how Paul, he kind of uses it positively now. He refers to the law as a guardian until Christ came. And I, it immediately made me think of my son, Henry, who is in the full IB program. He's a junior in high school. He's an extremely bright kid. And he, he came to Darcy and I just, uh, a couple weeks ago, and he said, he goes, 
I think I want to drop the IB program. Now, if my child comes to me and says, I want to drop the IB program because they're failing in the IB program, I'm going to be, of course, drop the IB program. But when your child who has straight A's comes to you and says, I want to drop the IB program, my immediate question was, why do you want to drop the IB program? And it's because he feels no freedom. He has no freedom. He goes, all my friends get, have so much free time. I just, I literally spend my days just doing homework. It's so much homework. And I'm like, buddy, it's a guardian. Until the freedom comes. <laughs> it's get, and it really is. I, I, was re, I, I had to go online, and we were, like, we were looking at blogs of like, is it literally, you can just type Google search, is the IB program worth it? And, and what you'll find from kids that went through it are like, the benefit is, is it, it taught me, it forced me into particular study habits that prepared me for the intensity of college. That's probably the greatest benefit of it, of doing these, this rigorous academic work in high school. It prepared me for, high, for college. It, it gave me life lessons. It was a guardian to prepare me for the freedom that was coming. And really, Paul is even using Torah as this. It was meant to be a protection until Jesus, who brings the liberation, comes. Until the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, came. And I think that this is an important lesson that we need to understand, is that the laws were our guardian until Christ came. And this is why we're not, why do, we, why do we want to put ourselves under the guardian if our liberation has arrived? But now... Listen, he says, in order that we might be justified by faith, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We have grown up. We have, we have passed through that stage in history. And so Paul is almost utilizing the picture of a child's development here to show us that what it means to be in Christ is to actually, and I think that even this principle is played out. I mean, both Peter and Paul utilize this call even in the book of Hebrews the constant call to move from immaturity to move on from the the elementary things to stop drinking milk and to begin to eat meat I think why would you go back he says you who's bewitched you you foolish Galatians why are you trying to now perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit he's given you freedom why do you want to go back under enslavement but that is the natural inclination of the human heart that's why I said that law following rules is often more appealing than following Jesus because at least when we follow rules, we can live by our own selective sanctification, set up the standards that make us feel good about our standing in the world rather than the adventurous and often dangerous excursion of following Jesus. Because Jesus says, follow me, and he never tells us where he's going, and that's crazy. But that's also exciting, depending on how you look at it. So I, I, I think this is important. So if this is what imprisonment under sin means, if this is the reality, is that all of the cosmos is enslaved under this principle of sin and bondage, what does it mean then to be free in Christ? When the Bible speaks of liberty, a prior bondage is always implied. Liberty is from Slavery to powers, and I want you guys to just hear this. When we talk about freedom, because our society loves to talk about freedom. We love to talk about what it means to be free. And freedom, uh, if it's defined by our culture and the age in which we live, is th 
the right to do whatever we want whenever we want. But nobody is truly free like that. You just have to become an anarchist, and still, I can promise you that you can quickly lose your ability to be an anarchist when you find yourself in prison by trying to exercise whatever it is you think you ought to be able to exercise. Because nobody's truly free. You can't, people are like, freedom of speech. Really? Okay, go into an airport and yell out, I have a bomb. See what happens. You're free to say it, but you are not free <laughs> to, uh, to stop the consequences of what's being said. And so freedom, I, I think even in our, our concept in society that we are a free people, our freedom is built upon what? Laws and parameters, which allow us to exercise limited freedom. <laughs> freedom from a gospel perspective is freedom from the powers that put us in bondage, the power of sin, and frees us to enter into this relationship with God. It's the liberty is from slavery to powers that oppose God for the fulfillment of his claims upon our life. And that's why we are free from sin by becoming a slave to Christ. That's the paradox. Because he alone is the good master. Sin is not a good master. Let me just tell you another thing that's not a good master. You. I always say that the worst master I have ever dealt with is myself. The freedom and the liberation that came from surrendering my life to Jesus. Surrender is the heartbeat of everything that I have ever preached because it's the only thing that's ever brought me peace. It wasn't self-forgetfulness to the point where I no longer exist no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's not what Paul is saying. But it's the surrender of my autonomy to the one who actually defines me in himself and helps me understand who he intended me to be by the power of his spirit. And so liberty is from this slavery to the powers that oppose God. We are set into a right position with him. We, this means that he has the ability to fulfill his claims upon our life as we trust in his son. Jesus, quoting Isaiah 61, verse 1, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I think it's fascinating that blindness and enslavement seem to be attached and the spiritual reality that Jesus came to free us from because sin enslaves us, but it also blinds us. And Jesus is the light of the world. But uh, let me just tell you, it does not matter how much light shines into your life if you're blind. It requires first, the Spirit has to give us sight to understand the depths of our own depravity. In fact, the more vision I receive, the more I walk in the light, the more sinful I see myself and how desperately I need King Jesus in everything that I do. When Paul says the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I keep on, the, the, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I keep on doing, I shouldn't do, who will save me from this body of death? It's all in the, in, in the present context that he uses that language about himself. And he says that the battle between the flesh and and the spirit is always raging. There is a civil war within us. The question is, is who will be victorious today? Will we be free in Christ or will we walk imprisoned under sin? And so let me just take you to what Jesus, speaking 
to Torah-following Jews had to say about freedom. Look at this passage in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. I love this passage. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, that's those who were following him, believed that he is the Messiah, if you abide in my word, now I just want to quickly connect this, uh, this is the, v- the very thing that he says, uh, that word abide, which means remain in. His word to his disciples in John uh, chapter 14 through 17, he often says, abide in me. So, and remember, Jesus is the Logos. So to abide in his word is essentially to abide in him. You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. Once again, in John 14, what did Jesus say in verse six? I am the way, the what? The truth. And the life and the truth that is me will what? Set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. First of all, why would they say that? Isn't their whole history based upon God's deliverance of them out of slavery? This shows the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We are horrible at remembering our histories. We always forget to remember, don't we? And when we do remember, it's probably not a trustworthy recollection. This is something that's really upsetting to me. I feel like I can't trust my memories. I'll say, I said this, and Darcy will be like, you did not say that. I said that. And I'll be like, no, you didn't. I said that. You always take credit for everything. No, it's true. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. And she's probably always right, because she likes to remind me that she has a steel trap memory. Uh, So, which is worthy of an amen, Richard. Uh, and so he says, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will now become free? Notice that their enslavement, their imprisonment under sin has also blinded them. They're not even aware of it. Isn't this the dilemma of the world that we're, we're confronted with? And he says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And how does Jesus define practicing sin? Those who do not abide in his word. Those who do not abide in him. This is the work of God that you believe in him when he has sent. Anything outside of faith in Christ is essentially sin. Do we not understand that when it says that the entire world in 1 John is under the sway, that is under the influence, the control of the wicked one? I don't think we realize how intense that statement is. And he says, and so what he's saying here, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He's essentially saying everyone is a slave to sin. (laughs) Uh, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, and how does the son set us free? By placing us in himself he alone is free it's when we abide in christ that we find freedom it's when we what's what uh what's the the famous the westminster catechism the chief end of man is to glorify god and enjoy him forever i would say we glorify god by enjoying him forever Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Notice, 
the condemnation that Jesus gives in Matthew 7 to those who do many things in his name. He says, away from me, I never knew you. Everything in our life as Christians is about our intimate knowledge of Jesus as a present reality. And so, if we don't abide in him, remain with him, glorify him by enjoying him, then we find ourselves in prison under sin. And the Son of Man sets us free, but let me just tell you, you do have the power to return to slavery. I do it all the time. So, are you imprisoned under sin? Or are you free in Christ? Not the freedom to do what you want, but the freedom to do what is right because you're abiding in Him and following Him and depending upon Him. Secondly, are you dead in sin or are you alive in Christ? Now, we don't think about this, but look in verses 26 to 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And, and the reason I want to talk about the wages of sin is death versus what it means to be alive in Christ, even though these verses don't specifically talk about death that sin brings, they are implying that reality by the fact that it declares that we have been baptized into Christ. Because what are you baptized into? His death, which means that you're resurrected in his resurrection. Uh, so this, remember that Paul, what Paul said when contrasting the gift that is Jesus, with the law in 321. If the law had been given, which was able to make alive, there would be no need for Jesus to come. But Jesus has come because we were dead. I think that that's what's implied in this verse. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You've come alive. You who were once dead. Why would you return to the law which could not bring life? You were dead in your sins and trespasses. Now you have been baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. Why would, you, why would you put off Christ and put back on your dead flesh? Why do you return to the carcass? And I don't think we think of this. We think of sin as imprisonment, of blindness, but what about sin as death? In 1 Corinthians 15, 56, it says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And we all know the reality of sin bringing death. We see that played out in our own mortality, just physically. Can't escape it. The death rate seems to be one per person. That's a reality. Secondly, we, we see the way that sin plays itself out in death. Think of the relationships throughout your life that you've probably killed or that, that per, or the other person is killed due to sin. Relationships dead. Physical bodies dying spiritual death when we're told that there is a resurrection from the dead it says for the righteous a resurrection unto life but for those that stand outside of faith in christ those who have rejected the king those who have rejected the cure they are resurrected unto a second death they went from being dead to a living death an eternal death this is why last week I put such a, a pressure. You know, I was talking with Gary Brashears this week about the necessity of evangelism. And I was asking him why, as a professor of theology, uh, it, why is it that the church has lost its zeal for evangelism? 
And he says, because the church has begun to believe the lie that people are basically good. And that hell is not a reality. And that in the end, even if they create hell for themselves on earth, it'll all be worked out in Jesus. So don't even worry about it. Well, that is definitely not what Jesus told us. It's definitely not what the New Testament says to us. There is an urgency in the scriptures that cannot be ignored, that has been pushed down in, a, in I believe, oppressed by church leaders today because it is considered not palatable for our modern sensibilities to say, choose today life or death. Those of you who are dead in your sin and trespasses come alive in Jesus. And what we would find is if we actually went back to preaching the gospel and lifting Jesus up and inviting people who are blind and dead and imprisoned in their sin to come out of that death and exalt King Jesus, he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. I will give them vision. I will draw them by my spirit. I will save them. And he wants to utilize us to do that. Sin is death. The sting of sin is death, says 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Listen to this. The power of sin is the law. Paul, once again, showing the law is incapable of actually saving us from the imprisonment of sin. All it does is reveal how imprisoned we are. It's a fascinating verse. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Someone asked me, like, what do you, you know, my, I had a Lutheran granny who was obsessed with me baptizing my children. Uh, and we would get in battles about this. And she would, she would always try to, try to share with me some passage to, to support her vision for infant baptism. But the, the biggest issue is that we're born in sin, and therefore, if we're born in sin, if they're not baptized, there's nothing to bring forgiveness for that sin. I, I want to just give you a, a vision for what it means to be born in sin. A child is also called, in the Scripture, innocent. And what I believe, what the Scripture declares, is that all people are born with the capacity to sin. So when it says, in my mother's womb I sin, in the Psalms, I think it's pretty dangerous to create an entire theological grid out of, out of poetry. What David is saying is that there is a reality that all of humanity is under the umbrella of sin. And so we are born into a world of sin. We are, have a disposition towards sin. And as we grow, we will move towards sin. And therefore, I maintain the innocence of babies. I think, they're, I think they're safe. I think God's mercy is good. <laughs> I think Jesus meant what he said when he said, let the little children come to me, for I have such as the kingdom of heaven. Just a side note, I just thought I'd give that to you as a benefit today. Uh, so, for the wages of sin is death, Paul says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that death is always connected to the reality of sin. Death. You guys ever see Shaun of the Dead? Should I admit that I've seen Shaun of the Dead? I've gotten in trouble for mentioning movies before, but there's a brilliant opening scene in Shaun of the Dead where, where he's on a, there, there's a city bus in London and, and everyone on the bus is sitting there and they like, have their Walkmans on and, they're, and they're, 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 they're listening to like their, their iPods and they're, 
and they're, they're drooling, and you think it's a bus full of zombies, but you just realize it's just people, because that's our world. And I think that even our obsession with, with zombies in our current culture is our obsession of what we think kills us and what we think makes us alive, and how many of us live half-dead lives. It's a fascinating reality. Being walking dead is not that far off from our reality. I think all of the, the fascination with zombies is really like some sort of interior reality that we know we're dead and we need more life. But here we have it. He says, but in Christ Jesus, you're all sons. So in Christ, we can be dead in sin or we can be alive in Christ. First of all, why does he say sons and not sons and daughters? Is it because God is sexist? I would argue that, uh, that the, the, the picture that is given is that there's a very specific reason, a theological reason, actually, why it says that we are all sons. Because we are all positionally treated like the son, the heir. We are co-heirs with Christ. And don't worry, girls, if you're offended by being called the son of Christ, guys, we get called the bride of Christ. So it's all, it's all confused. Our society would approve of that. <laughs> so here's the reality. We are sons of God. Essentially, we are positionally treated like the son when we are in Christ. That's what's meant by that passage. But what does it mean, our baptism into Christ? Because he says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. First of all, let me just say that I believe that this is a spiritual reality, this baptism into Christ. But I do believe that there is a very practical call that those, Paul is assuming that those who have put their faith in Christ are baptized. In fact, the early church, the altar call was baptism. It wasn't come forward if you want to receive Jesus into your heart. It was repent and be baptized. If, if I had my way and water wasn't expensive, uh, we would have baptisms every Sunday after church for anyone that wants to get saved. Repent, be baptized. I would encourage you, I was, I was talking with, a, with a, another pastor, it's, it's fascinating because there's many churches that think that baptism, you gotta go through a class, you need to make sure that your theology's solid. And, and I've been actually questioned why when we do river baptisms or any baptism, I always present the gospel at the end and say, does anyone else wanna be baptized right now? I'm going to trust that God's going to sort that out. Is it possible that you baptize someone that's not really saved? Absolutely. But I don't know what's going on in the human heart, and I don't see Peter doing classes before he baptizes 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. And so here's the, here's the reality. I, I think when I was talking with my uh, pastor friend of mine, he goes, I believe that we're about to see an awakening in our city. And he goes, I think it'd be rad if we just started seeing even just baptisms happening in people's bathtubs. And then I said, you know, I actually did that a couple times when I started Door of Hope because we didn't have a baptismal, and it was awkward. It's a really awkward way. I, did a bapt- I baptized my friend Dave Gallison in his bathroom, and I remember there was like 10 people trying to crowd into the bathroom, and, he's a, and, and I'm a big guy, and he's a big guy, and I'm trying to dunk him in the bathtub. But I say go for it. If you have friends, your community group, someone hasn't been baptized, baptize them in their bathtub. Uh, but I think we need to be a church that's radical in our evangelism that recognizes that to be in Christ is to be baptized with him into death and resurrected into newness of life. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1-4. through four. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We are not free to do what we want, but what is right, as I place there, do you not know that all of us 
who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Notice, our escape from the death that sin brings is being baptized into the death of Christ. How does Jesus deal with the curse of sin? What did we look at a couple weeks ago? By becoming what? A curse for us. How do we find life? By entering into his death. We've been baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. That's why I say when you were submerged into the water in that sacred rite of baptism, you are being submerged into his death symbolically and being raised into the newness of life through his resurrection. And that's exactly what it says. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? The newness of life. Dead in sin or alive in Christ. Look with me at this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Because this is what it means to be alive in Christ. Verses 4 through 6. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Man, raised up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I always say that, that it is possible for us to live with this reality, enjoying heaven on the way to heaven, if we understand what it means to abide in Jesus. Because we are alive in him. He is the life. There is a part of us that's with him in the heavenly places that's so mysterious. And then he is with us in this place. May we bring heaven to earth by our walking and abiding in Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture. Finally, are we separated by sin or are we one in Christ? And now here is one of the central passages in Galatians and we'll close right here. There is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If sin is imprisonment, if sin is death, sin is, I would say, supremely separation. Sin separates us in three directions. Relationally from God, relationally from one another, and even relationally with ourselves. The gospel is primarily a gospel of relationship. To be right, to be saved is to be put in right relationship with God, which enables us to be in right relationship with others and ultimately to be in right relationship with self. To be made in the image of God is primarily to be made relational. That's what that means. I think it means more than that, but I think that that's the central tenant of what it means to be made in the image of God, that God is himself a relationship within himself, a community within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are made in his image. Let us make man in our image. Mankind, humanity, we are made for relationship. The essence of sin is the destruction of relationship, is it not? So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says, remember that you were at that time, separated from Christ. Not only separated from Christ, but separated from one another. 
And what does it mean to be one in Christ, Jesus? Now notice, this passage often is very appealing to many of the conversations that are occurring today. But we need to apply it correctly. Because this passage doesn't mean the eradication of distinctions. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now let me just ask you a question. That statement is said to Jews and Greeks, slaves and free people. It, 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 was, it was stated to men and women. Did they stop being those things because of this statement? So what is being said? Because here's the thing. This is the this is the the culture and the moment in which we live is that in a cosmos imprisoned under sin, differences, whether it's racial, gender or socioeconomic, will always be a cause of division and discrimination and social injustice. It's a reality. And, And actually thinking through this verse has given me more sympathy or is it empathy? I never know which one to use Uh, toward movements that are actually even failed movements. Think about this. Most religions, political movements like communism or capitalism, social movements like feminism or affirmative action have been societal attempts to fix these injustices and divisions. Have they not? All of them have. But failure is inevitable under that first principle of sin. Everything is imprisoned under sin. And so all of these attempts to address injustices often end up creating new injustices. Think about, the, think about the conversations around gender today. Now, the new language that we are called to use, that my children are being taught in school, is that gender, sex, is biological, gender is a social construct. Is that not what our kids are being taught? What our society declares? But the gospel is fascinating because if that is true then that actually threatens one of the primary doctrines of the Christian faith, which is what it means to be made in the image of God. He made them male and female. He made them. If we eradicate that, we have to get rid of Genesis. We actually have to get rid of Jesus' own teaching on the subject. But you see, these are issues. We definitely recognize... what's, What's fascinating is that the same people that would make that kind of proclamation would never say that race is a social construct. Now, here's the thing. is what I'm beginning to realize is that instead of being angry at the movements of society toward these things, is actually seeing underneath it. And I believe underneath all of these attempts, communism was an attempt to bring equality. But the problem is, is that under sin, people dominated that structure. And it was a failed. Is capitalism any better? I'm reading Jacques Ellul, who uh, considered himself a Christian anarchist. And I've been trying to figure out what he meant by that. And it kind of rubbed me wrong. I just don't like those words together. But really, all he's saying is that we live by the ethics of another kingdom. Our kingdom is not of this earth. And we are not to give our loyalty to any kingdom of man. That's what it's saying. So that when we find ourselves in Christ, 
what would happen in the church. And Gary said something really fascinating to me when I was meeting with him about this passage, and he thought it was really important that I address this, is that a slave didn't stop being a slave in, when, this, when this letter was written. But in the church, that slave could find himself becoming an elder. Is that what you had was that those distinctions were a reality, but the distinctions, rather than creating division and discrimination, actually became a place where the one body has many members. Where there is unity and it becomes a family. And so that oneness, Darcy and I are married and the two shall become one flesh. My wife did not become me and I did not become Darcy. There is not the eradication or the distinct, uh, of the distinction between her and myself. But the oneness is a reality. That we do things together. We are one family. And our family is, I, I like that, what, what Chesterton says about the family. He said, your house, the, ho- the house where your family lives, it's the one place where you're allowed to be an anarchist, which means I can wear my underwear around the house and not get in trouble. Not going to do that on Sunday when I come to preach. There's this freedom, this liberation that comes when we function as a family, this oneness. And I believe that the picture of this is a powerful reality that as a family united in Christ, we are one body in many parts. There are still distinctions. There's still differences in roles. But our position in Christ is equal. Which means that I am no more important to King Jesus than you are. Which means that I have no right to exalt myself above you but must become your chief servant. And so it is that we find that the distinctions actually are harmonized when we are in Christ. And this is why it says in Revelation that every tongue from every nation, notice the distinctions and races is not eradicated in heaven. Every tongue from every nation will be worshiping God around the throne. What a powerful picture. And so we find ourselves here. And let me just close with this passage from Ephesians. Chapter 2 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us, that is Jew and Gentile, male and female, doesn't matter, what, what, whatever those distinctions, you can fill in the blank, both one has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments, that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in the place of the two, so making peace. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are being built together. This is what it means to be in Christ. That our relationship with Jesus has been restored and the evidence that that has been restored is how we relate to one another. And then and only then should we really worry about ourselves. So are you imprisoned under sin or are you walking free in Christ? Are you dead in sin? Are you alive today? Alive in Him? Are you separated relationally by sin, or are you one in Christ? May we find our answers in him, for he is the truth. 
Amen. Let's pray.